Hi, and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church Podcast. We want to thank you for joining us online and remind you to feel free to visit our website at seacoastvineyard.com anytime for up-to-date information on our local church here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. If you would like to give financially to this ministry, whether that's a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift, simply click on the Give tab at our website and give however God leads you. Now, we want you to enjoy this message from God's Word. Tim, one of the pastors here, and uh, great to have you. And like Brian said, we're closing out this series. Uh, we have been in a, like a 27-day, actually it's a little longer, but a 27-day emphasis in this church where we have uh, tried to posture ourselves for a new year. And we've looked at things like fasting, uh, prayer, solitude, some of the ways that the church has practiced in the past and the way the scripture teaches us to try to gain God's perspective of life and so that we could start as a church 2013 the right way. So we're going to uh, finish that journey up this morning. A part of uh, this journey, like I said, was fasting in Isaiah 58 where we learned that if we just fast, if we just forego food so we can walk around and go, hey, you know what, I'm a pretty spiritual dude now. I went without food for spiritual purposes, and that's all we got out of it was a little bit of hunger pains, but we didn't gain a new perspective of God for the poor. If we didn't gain a new perspective from God for those who are hungry, if we didn't feel some of the hunger pains that they feel so that we can pray and also do something about it. So what we've done, these alms buckets, we put these up when we began the journey uh, the first of uh, January, and we've been taking the food or the money for the food that we would normally eat on Wednesdays and Fridays. We decided we would fast Wednesdays and Fridays, and uh, some of you guys have fasted one meal. Some of us have been going from sunup to sundown, which was an uh, ancient practice of the early church. That, that's what they, uh, they would do. They would practice on you know, no food on Wednesdays, no food on Fridays. They would pray, take a look at their own soul, and they would also fast as they began to prepare for communion. They would check their heart. They would check their soul, put themselves before God to see uh, if there was anything, any business they needed to do with God before they took communion. We're going to take communion at the end of the sermon this morning. And also, this is uh, the last service for putting our alms in. So far, it's been a little over $2,000 the last few weeks that you guys have given above and beyond your normal giving, tithes and offerings that are going straight out into the hands of those who need help. And so thank you for that. And uh, when we go back to worship here in just a little bit, you're welcome to come to the front and to uh, put your offering here in the alms for, the, uh, for that part of it. Uh, last week I mentioned in the scripture, or we read in the scripture, this phrase, the law of Christ. And I ask you guys, what is the law of Christ? And we got various answers, and, but it all boiled down to this, that it was as it was taught uh, by Jesus that it's uh, in, in the Old Testament, what they called the Shema, was to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. And to what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus comes along and says, hey, there's going to be one major characteristic of those who follow me. And that would be what? Love. But what kind of love? I mean, love is a really popular phrase, right? I mean, a popular word. Everybody uses it. Don't you wish you had one penny for every song that was written about love? Just love. I saw a bumper sticker. I see it almost every morning. Uh, 
when I go out on a car that basically makes the declaration that if you love someone or something, the fact that you have affection for it validates it as real love. I mean, is that the best we can do for love? Is that the best definition? If I feel something toward a person or a thing, then that is love. I know what real love is. I mean, I love scallops. But I don't want to marry a scholar. I don't. I, I, you know, I didn't. I mean, is that, how do we define love? And then when you come into the kingdom, when you begin to, walk, to follow Jesus and to ask him to teach you to walk this life out the way that he taught us to walk it out, love takes on a whole other dimension. And so we're going to finish this up today talking about that, talking about love. And let's just face it, our love can be a bit fickle, can it? I mean, it really can. Watch this video. Hey, I found a love quiz in a magazine. You want to take it? Sure. All right. Okay. His hair color, brown. Your hair color, light brown. His favorite color. Purple. Oh yeah, purple. Your favorite color, green. Are you his first love? Yes. Is he yours? No. Okay, let's see. Oh, no. What? This magazine says we have a 7% chance of staying together. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> is that funny to you? Well, no. Donnie, this is serious. No, it's not. It's just a stupid love quiz. Donnie, 7% is not very much. Come on, babe. I mean, it's you just... know, maybe we should reevaluate our whole relationship. Because of the test? Yes, because of the test. It asked me for my favorite color. I need some time to think about this. I'll call you later. Oh, okay. You've seen these shows where they ask kids definitions and... Uh, I read these the other day. I thought they were quite cute. Uh, Billy, age four, when asked what love is, says, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Aww. And Chrissy, age six, <laughs> says, love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your French fries without making them give you any of theirs. <laughs> Terry, age four, says, love is what makes you smile when you are tired. Isn't that great? Danny, age seven, love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. And Tommy, age six, says, love is like a little old woman and a little old man who are still friends, even though they know each other so well. <laughs> and Karen, age seven, says, when you love somebody... Your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. <laughs> oh, these are cute. 
Years ago, I was in a meeting, uh, a rather large meeting, and various pastors were preaching, and a, a certain pastor named E.V. Hill, very wonderful man of God, got up and spoke, and, and uh, he was talking about love, what love was, and Pastor Hill, of course, uh, grew up and served through the civil rights movement, and he got a lot of death threats on his life, and one particular day, he was sharing that uh, he was told that he was going to be killed before... 24 hours had passed. He'd received these threats, and so he went to bed that night, and he said he was very shaken, and, uh, but he finally went to sleep and woke up the next morning, and you know, when he woke up, he says, wow, I'm, I'm still alive. That's really good, but his wife was not by his side, and so he got up, got out of bed, and he heard a car driving into the driveway, and he looked out of his window and saw her pulling into the driveway with his car. So he goes downstairs and walks up to her and says, uh, What's going on? Where have you been? And his wife responded with, It just occurred to me that they had put a bomb in that car last night. And if you had gotten in there, you would have been blown away. So I got up and drove it. It's all right. Love. Love. Remember the movie uh, Sleepless in Seattle? None of the guys are in. Oh, some of the guys are going, Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Chick flick, you know. It was a movie kind of based on a movie. I mean, the, the movie talked about an affair to remember, Cary Grant, all of that, and Meg Ryan's character, you know, had all these ideas of what love was. And then her best friend says this to her, a movie, that's your problem. You don't want to be in love. You want to be in love in a movie. Love, what is love? What is real love? What is God's love? And if we come out of this 30 days that we've been trying to get, gain God's perspective. Uh, if we come out of this not more full of the love of God, if we don't have more of God's love in our life than we did when we started this thing, then I think we've missed it a little bit. So I want to bring this to a close today around the topic of God's love and what it looks like. Uh, our text is Romans 12, verses 9 through 13. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn there. Romans 12, 9 through 13. So we'll read this and we'll jump into it. 9 through 13. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Father, we ask your blessing on your word. Pray that you would just breathe life on it today, Lord. Lord, I ask you for the gift of teaching that you would come through your Holy Spirit. Open our hearts and blow that sweet wind to bring the flame of your love out of our lives in a greater degree this morning. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. We pray, come, move among us, fall on us, teach us, correct us, help us repent, help us keep our eyes on Jesus, but you come and rule and reign in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, You have a fill-in in your handout if you want to track along with me there. And your first fill-in is from verse 9. Love must be sincere. God's love, real love, is sincere. Love must be sincere. Remember the old song? Well, some of, maybe a few of you will. Most everybody's like younger than me now. But uh, ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. But what is the real thing? 
Everybody wants the real thing. We want to know what is the authentic love. We want that for our lives. But what does it look like? What does the love of God look like? What is the real thing? The real love of God. When you're young, when you're young, it's the feeling. It's that biological thing. And, and I do believe that's part of love. I, I think it's neat and it's wonderful. And, and uh, I still get it, feel it for my wife. And uh, you know these little things that pop up and remind you back when you were 18 years old. And I look at her and I think back and bam, you know, it's like, oh, I remember that feeling. Woo! You know? <laughs> now, some of that's not love, you know? <laughs> Just saying. But I like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's got to be, there's got to be, there's got to be more to that love, you know, that carries its own through the years. But I thank God for feeling. It's a good thing. Uh, I've, I've got a brother who worked with the government for many, many years, and one of his jobs was recognizing counterfeit money. And so uh, Thursday, when I was finishing this up, I sent him off an email, and I said, "Hey, how do you tell?" How do you tell what's real and what's, you know, counterfeit? And, he, of course, he sends me back this very technical thing. And uh, I didn't know that, you know, our money was made of such complex material that there's a thing called rag quality, a cloth in it, that there's one company, one place in the United States that makes them, that there's all kind of unique characteristics to the real thing. And then at the end of uh, his email, he wrote this. He said, best way to tell is to use another bill and compare. Bad stuff will usually be apparent. But it wouldn't be apparent if you don't have the real thing. You won't know. So you must know the real. We have to know the authentic to be able to even recognize the fake. And I think Paul gives us some help in this passage in Romans 12. And your next feeling is this, and this is from verse 9. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And that is that love is expressed through ethics. There is a moral quality to real love, to true love, to God's love. There is, there's an ethic that uh, surrounds God's love. Jesus, in John 14, 15, said, If you love me, keep my commands. There was a certain ethic and morality that was attached to, if we love God, we want to obey God. We want to do things the, the way that he's called us to do it. And again in John 15:10, he said, "If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love." And then the apostle John kind of brought this into our relationships where in 1 John 5:2 he says, "This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands." You see, this ethic, this morality in the love of God, it even affects how we treat one another. We can't really love one another the way we should without God's help. We can't do it. We just can't do it. Love is a very, our love is a very selfish thing. I love you, I love you. It's like when we get married, you know, I promise to love you, to stay faithful, to keep you, to sickness and health, and really what we're saying in my sickness I promise I'll let you take care of me. I promise you when I don't have any money and you do, I'll take it. Um, I, that really, I mean, if we really were to pierce the heart and look into it, it's really what we get out of the relationship, not so much what I want to give 
to the relationship. And even coming into a relationship with God, it's like I want to get my sins forgiven and I want to make sure I'm okay with God, but then I don't want to walk any further. That's not loving God. There is a moral quality and an ethic involved in real love. Just like in your marriage, you have a morality, you have an ethic in your marriage, right? Where you do certain things and certain things are expected of one another and when you do that, it expresses love to one another. It shows you're committed to one another and God's love helps us in that and it points in the direction and we can't even do that together without his help. We can't do it. He, he says cling to what is good and he says hate what is evil. It's okay to hate the things that try to tear us apart or hate the things that are tearing our friends' lives apart. I mean, that's love. It's not love to say, oh, just go ahead and destroy your life because I love you too much to talk to you about it. I love you too much to say this isn't the best for your life. This isn't the ethics. This isn't the morals of the life that you should be le- uh, leading. This, go ahead and do what you want to. Oh, it's none of my business. Well, you don't love that person. Let's just be honest. We don't. We don't. We love ourselves because we don't want them to get mad at us. That's why some of us don't. We just don't discipline our children because if they were to withdraw their love from us, we don't think we could take it. Who do we love the most when we do that? We love ourselves. We love ourselves more than we love them. There's a moral quality to the love of God where we want to obey. We want to go that direction. And if we come out of this 30 days of fasting and prayer and trying to get our moral life and our spiritual life lined up and we don't have a deeper love for God that, that uh, affects us in this area, then we've missed it these last 30 days. You know, I, I, had this, I took this out of my notes, but I'm, I'm bringing it back. <laughs> I hope you got convicted these past 30 days of some sin. I hope that God put his finger on some things in your life. He did mine. I hope he did yours because that's a great gift. Repentance is your first act of worship. It's the first time you ever say that God is God and you aren't is when you turn and you go, I can't forgive my sins and I can't straighten myself out. But he can. That's an act of worship. Repentance is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it doesn't end right there, does it? We do this over and over and over again as God puts his finger on our life. And it's okay to hate in our brothers' and sisters' lives the things that threaten to destroy them. It's not love when we let that go. We don't want to substitute some weak need, unconditional support for real, honest love. The same pastor, Pastor Evie Hill, uh, tells a humorous story about his daughter, it's, I think you can find this on YouTube, and it's a part of his, actually his wife's funeral. He preached his wife's funeral. And he talks about a young man who showed up at his front door to date his daughter. And he opened the door and looked at him and went, nah, not going to happen. <laughs> and the young man said, uh, I'm here for whatever his daughter's name is. And he says, no, you aren't. <laughs> and uh, thank you, but uh, no, you won't be seeing my daughter. Man, uh, she, he left, and he closes the door, and he hears his daughter from upstairs go, Dad, was that for me? Pastor Hill goes, no, that wasn't for you. 
love. It has a quality to it that wants the best. It hates the things that rob us of the best. And our brothers and sisters in the church, in this family that we have, we want the best for one another. God's love wants the best. It has a moral quality to it. Love is sincere. Love is, has a moral ethic component to it. And thirdly, love is expressed through devotion. Love is expressed through devotion in verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. I mean, doing church is tough because if you're, you, know, you don't have devotion without emotion. Have you realized that? Anything you're devoted to, you can emote about. It will just gush out of you. Anything you're passionate about, you will begin to just emote. Anything you are devoted to, you don't want someone to take it from you. And uh, man, I always tell people they get mad with one another. And you ever told somebody this? You get mad with them and you go, I just don't care what you say. Really? Because if you didn't care, why did you get so emotional about it? You know why? Because there is some devotion. There is some connection. There is something there that you feel is of of value. Devotion puts us in a position of emotion. And that's not always comfortable. But God's love calls us to a place of devotion. I mean, a devotion that God calls us to is really kind of scary. Look at uh, Matthew 5, 43 through 45. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus doesn't lower the bar on love or being devoted to that love, even in situations that are uncomfortable at times. In Matthew 5, 38 through 39, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Man, this is hard. This kind of love. It's difficult. And it takes a passionate love, a passion for God, a love for God to let that kind of love be birthed in our lives. And in Matthew or Mark 3, Jesus even takes it another step. Mark 3 and verses 31 through 35, when he says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Jesus is preaching. And his mother and his brothers, his brothers think he's a kook, that he's... I mean, they think, you know, they don't get it. They didn't get it until after he had been raised from the dead, but families like that sometimes. And, uh, you know, so they come, through, they come through the door. You know, one of the disciples, they see, says, hey, look, your family's here. Your mom and your brothers are here. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus, did you ever notice Jesus asked a lot of questions? Who are my mother and my brothers? What kind of question is that? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here is my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, in the first century, all the way back to the Old Testament, the family you were a part of meant everything. And we talked about this at Christmas time when we went through the lineage of Mary. 
That's why you get in some of you that are reading through the, the Bible this year. You get to Numbers and you get to all these names and you read all these weird names, begat, 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 begat. And you go, what's the deal with all these begats? And this one had this one and this one had that one and there's all these names. That's because in the Hebrew mindset, in the Hebrew uh, culture, who you were who your family was, was everything. That's how you said who you were. You said, I am a part of this family. This was my father. This was my grandfather. This was my great-grandfather. And that's how people knew who you were. That was your identity. Now, it's changed in America. We don't do that much anymore. The first question out of our mouth is, what do you do for a living? What is your profession? Or what school did you graduate from? Those are the questions we ask now because that's how we find identity. But back in Jesus' day, the family was defined by that lineage. And so when Jesus said, who are my mothers? Who is my mother and my brothers? And then he said, these are my mo-. That was astounding to those people. You see, Jesus didn't minimize or he didn't devalue family. He just extended it. When you come into the kingdom of God, when you come to Christ... God places you in a family, and that family, those brothers and those sisters, your family increases. I mean, look around the room today. If you're a follower of Jesus, the folks in this room who follow Christ with you are your brothers and sisters. Now, it takes the love of God for us to value that and appreciate that, and it takes a lot of hard work in a local church to even pound that out. It's much easier to have a meeting than it is to do family. It's a lot easier to have a big meeting, have a music, great music, have a message. That was great. Let's go home. You know, and then don't get to know the family. Don't mix it up. But Jesus comes along and throws out the challenge. And he says, listen, your family's a lot bigger than you think it is. Now, that's great news. That's good news. That's not bad news. And we need Jesus to live this out. It's tough. But where are the people who come through these doors? Where are the people here in Myrtle Beach who show up at our churches broken, hurting, and they need someone to come alongside of them and to help them? Where's that going to happen? Who's going to do that? Do you remember when you were very small and you got sick and you stayed home? I don't know if it was like this for you, but when I was really little, I loved getting sick. Because my mom ice cream, you know, you'd sit there. I, I couldn't handle it about one day of it, though. But, but you know, you know, my grandmother lived with us for a long time, and so she would come along, too. And, you know, it was a family taking care of the family, and they would just dote on you and see that you were nursed back to health. And we've got a huge challenge ahead of us, church, to live this love that God has called us out to live out with one another. Because there are people in here, right in here, right now, who are sick, who need someone to come alongside them, to be with them. And this is the place where they're supposed to find it. This is it. We have small groups. Rick, Pastor Rick's over here. He oversees our small groups. That's our connection into a smaller community where people can get to know you. Brenda Isley has a, uh, some people that go to the hospital with her. I mean, I don't find out a lot of times about people being in the hospital till they're healed, you know. <laughs> till they're, they're out. But we've got people who keep in contact with everyone. That's how the church takes care of itself is it ministers to itself. We all take that responsibility. 
So we need to be in this family, in a family where we can give care and we can love and share with one another and be devoted to one another in love. Are you a part of a small group? Are you a part of some place where people love you? Other brothers and sisters in Christ can speak into your life and you can support them and love them? I'm a part of like, like three different meeting groups with people. I've, I've got uh, you know a few of this one-on-one with some men and then I've got one with a pastor friend of mine and we get together every month and men, we throw it out. If I'm hurting and sick, he knows about it. And he's there to pray for me. And I'm the same for him. When I go in there, I know I'm going to have an ear and a heart. There won't be any judgment in there. There's going to be a friend, and there's going to be somebody that cares about me. Now, that's safety for me as your pastor, and that's also help for me as a brother. And we all need that. We all need that in our life, being devoted to one another. That is the love of God. Where are we going to do what Romans 12, 15 says? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Where is that going to happen if not in the church? I read the, the story of a four-year-old boy, another young boy who got the award for the most caring child one year. And uh, he had a next-door neighbor who was very old. And the old man had lost his wife of many, many, many years. And the little boy would see him sitting on his front porch just weeping. And so one day the little boy went into the man's yard and he climbed up into his lap and just sat there. And when he went back home, his mom asked him, she said, what did you say to him? And the little boy, the little four-year-old said this, nothing, I just helped him cry. I mean, that, that is the body of Christ. That is seeing your brother and your sister as someone as close as your family. That is pushing the bounds out of what it means for us to have brothers and sisters. Where will we cry with one another? Where, where will we learn to follow Jesus together? To help one another. Get up. Get up when we fall down. Get up. Let's go. Brush off. You can do it. Let's go. To ask for Jesus, for the Holy Spirit to come and cleanse and heal and restore. And let's get up. Let's go again. Where are we going to learn to navigate all the phases of life? I look out here this morning and I see every kind of age and group. And I love this diversity. I love it. Thank you, Jesus. I love it because that's my dream, to have a very diverse church of age and ethnicities and all just together doing this thing. Who's going to help us navigate all those different phases of life? Who's going to be there? The church is meant to be in one another's lives to the extent we're there to support one another, be devoted to one another. So this extraordinary love is sincere, it's genuine, it's authentic, and that authenticity is shown through godly ethics, a moral component, and it's thrown, shown through devotion to one another. And your fourth one here is it's, love is expressed with God's passion, with God's passion. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Uh, another translation says it this way, in zeal, do not be lazy. Be set on fire by the Spirit. Serve the Lord. We need the fire of the Holy Spirit in order to love the way we are called to love. We do. I mean, let's just face it, we're all selfish pigs. Let's just say it. I mean, come on. We are. We just are. I mean, that's just, that's, I mean, I am. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. 
I mean, we, we come into this thing broken, broken, a, a gaping vacuum. <laughs> it's sucking in everything it can to just try to meet our needs. And only God's Holy Spirit, the fire of God, the love that took Jesus to that cross and brought him out of that grave will change our selfish ways. It's the only thing that can purify our hearts. In the Old Testament, over in Leviticus and Second Chronicles, they, they would bring the, the offerings to the altar and they would pray and God would send the fire down. Only God can send the fire. I can't whip it up. I can't try to get this thing going. I can't make the fire burn. Only God brings the fire. But we can keep it going. We can nurse the fire. In Leviticus 6, 8 through 13, God told Moses that the priest, and that's you now, because every believer is a priest now in this dispensation, this time of the New Testament. We all are priests unto our God. We all have the Holy Spirit in us. Every one of us. He told the priests, you keep the fire burning. You keep it burning. We help keep that fire burning. And listen, it's the tendency of fire to go out, isn't it? I mean, that's just the nature of fire. It wanes. It goes down. It has to have fuel on it. It has to have the breath of God on it. You guys were given a little book like this this morning. And this is part of that breath that I wanted you guys to have. We ordered these so everybody, we got enough for everyone to have. How's your soul? This was written by our national director in the vineyard. And uh, Phil Strout, Phil and Jan are going to be with us in October. They'll be here for a weekend. And uh, this is a tremendous tool. If you think, I don't know how to get my devotional life together, Tim. Well, this is excellent entry point. Morning and evening, a once a year examine. Tremendous tool for you to use. So we wanted you to have this and put this in your hand so you can blow on the flame of the presence of God in your life and the fire can be sustained daily. And that it can grow in the months ahead. We have to do that. In Acts 2, verses 1 through 4, we read, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. When the church came together, the Holy Spirit fell. The fire began to burn. But if you leave there and you make your way through the book of Acts, you see that those same people prayed again and again to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It wasn't a one-time thing because fire wanes. It goes down. And we have to ask the Lord, please fill me with your presence, Lord. Fill me with the Holy Spirit so that the fire of God can consume this stuff that's in me so I can love the way you've called me to love. Because without the fire of God, we cannot do this. But with the fire, with the fire of God, there is absolutely no boundaries to what this church could do in this community and how much we could love and how much we could see people restored. We need the fire of God. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Fan into flame. Who fans it? You do. We do with each other. Isn't it neat? My flame's going down. I get with one of my friends. Come on, Tim. Come on. Fan it in. Come on. Come on. 
you know, praying, laying hands on one another. Come on, get the flame up. Get the flame up. That's what the church does. That's what we do for one another. It's God's zeal. It's God's passion. It's that fervor for God that God brings to us in the Holy Spirit we need. Not our own emotional part of it. God's part of it that will enable us to live the way that we're supposed to live. Here in just a moment, when we close out the service, there'll be a prayer team over here. Man, get up and rush over there and say, fan me. Fan the flame. Pray the Holy Spirit would come. I want to be full of His presence. I want to be full of the presence of God. I want the fire of God in my life so I can love the way that Tim was talking about today, the way the Scripture tells us to love. I want to be like that. Fan into flame. Wesley Duell, in his book, A Blaze for God, uh, says this, God has created our spirits flammable. We are spiritually combustible. Our nature is created to be set ablaze by the Spirit. We are spiritually most blessed, most victorious, most godlike when we glow with holy flame, the flame of the indwelling Spirit. Have you ever been on fire for God more, more so than right now? Well, then you need to be fanned. The flame needs to be fanned. We need to pray for a new filling, each of us. You were born to burn, and I don't mean hell. <laughs> now, I believe in hell, but you weren't born to go there. You were born to burn for God. That was why you were created. You were born to burn. Burn with the presence of the Lord in your life, with the love of God in your life. And lastly, verses 12 and 13, love is expressed with caring, with caring. And we really can't care the way we should without that flame, without that fire. That's why this comes after that mention of the fervor of the Lord because we need that in our life. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Without the fire, there's just no way we can do that. But with the fire, we can do it. We can. There's a wonderful uh, uh, and, well, there's a wonderful part of John Wesley's journal. John Wesley, w- with his brother, they were founder of Methodism. You know what I'm talking about, the, the Methodist church. Back in the 1700s, uh, John was coming across from England to America. He was on a ship, and he was on board with some people called the Moravians. Moravians were a German group of people who took uh, the love of God and the power of God and the presence of God very serious. And so when their founder, a very rich count, Count von Zinzendorf, when he had formed the Moravian group, he sent them out all over the world in missions and told them to go and serve and to love people the way that God loves them and to pray for the power of the Spirit to come. And so John Wesley, Mr. Staunch John Wesley, is going across to America and he's watching the Moravians, the Germans, on board the ship. And this is a quote from his journal. At seven, I went to the Germans... I had long before observed the great seriousness of their behavior. Of their humility, they had given a continual proof by performing those servile offices for the other passengers, which none of the English would undertake, for which they desired and would receive no pay, saying it was good for their proud hearts. And their loving Savior had done more for them. And every day had given them occasion of showing a meekness which no injury could move. If they were pushed, struck, or thrown down, they rose again and went away. But no complaint was found in their mouth. There was now an opportunity of trying whether they were delivered from the spirit of fear as well as from that of pride and anger 
and revenge. In the midst of the psalm wherewith their service began, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. The Germans calmly sung on. I asked one of them afterwards, Was you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. I asked, But were not your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, No, our women and children are not afraid to die. From them I went to their crying, trembling neighbors and pointed out to them the difference in the hour of trial between him that feareth God and him that feareth him not. At twelve the wind fell. This was the most glorious day which I have hereto seen. Church, we've turned our face toward Christ over the last 27 days and we have asked the Lord to give us his perspective. We have fasted. We've asked the Lord to bring us alongside the hungry. We have taken our alms. We are giving them to the poor. We have found some time alone where we can check our souls with God and hear that quiet voice of the Spirit speaking to us. We have learned to pray and talk to Him. But if we come out of all of this and we do not have more love and more of the love of God in our hearts, then we have missed it. May the Lord bring His fire upon His people. May the Lord make us anxious for His presence. May the Lord burn His love so deep inside of us that when we look at people like the Moravians, we see people who need to know the love of God. When people walk through the doors of our church on Sunday morning and we don't know them, may we have a heart of compassion and love. May we be good neighbors to those who have not seen love in a very long time. May we be the people of God. People of purpose, people of passion, a people who love the people that Jesus loves. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast from Seacoast Vineyard Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We look forward to you joining us next time on iTunes or at our website, www.seacoastvineyard.com.